I'm Christian Walmart, and welcome to Calling All Stations, the podcast that brings you all the latest news on transport issues. And with me is Mark Walker of Cogitamus. Hi, Mark. Hello, Christian. We're, our podcast today is principally uh, contains an interview that you have secured, a, a rare and very insightful interview with Anit Chandarana, who is lead director for the Great British Railways transition team. And Anit uh, has been talking to you about the work of GBRTT, the Rail Reform Programme, and the prospects for legislation to implement the William Shapps Plan for Rail. So on this podcast, we like to interview uh, leading transport figures, and uh, I thought that it would be very interesting to hear what is happening at Great British Railways transition team. And so with me is the lead uh, director, Anit Chandarana, uh, who has uh, agreed to uh, speak to us about progress at GBRTT and um, what is needed. So Let's just start, Anit, by saying, just give me a little bit of history about this, because uh, I think this was a, the, the name particularly is a, is a bit of Boris Johnson. So it, it obviously stretches some way back. Yeah, no, sure. Um, uh, and thank you, Christian, for the opportunity to talk on it. So, yes, this does stretch some way back. It, it starts with you know, some really difficult period of time in, in the railway's history, with particularly the May 2018 timetable collapse. And at that point, the then Secretary of State, Chris Grayling, um, it really dawned on him how the industry uh, didn't uh, didn't have a way of coming together naturally in the way that it was uh, it was organised, and so he commissioned uh, Keith Williams to do the what what became the uh, Williams Review, and then ultimately the William Shapps White Paper. And the fundamentals um, are that that Keith uh, found was was absolutely what Chris Grayling uh, was seeing was that ultimately. All roads led to the Secretary of State. That's really where the industry came together. Um, and that uh, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned people were in the industry. And, and Keith was very clear that he did see a lot of people who were well-intentioned, good, clever people. They were working to uh, different in different uh, incentives and different objectives and uh, doing what rational people do, which is work hard to achieve those objectives. But when you added all of those objectives together, they didn't provide a rational outcome for the industry as a whole. And of course, Christian, you've recognised that you know for, for a while now in some of your your work uh, um, that that uh, that we were not delivering for customers. Um, and by customers, let's be really clear: we mean passengers and we mean freight users. Uh, those are the customers, um, and that we weren't delivering for the funders either as a consequence of... of this of really came point. about because of the uh, May 2018 timetable debate, which highlighted this, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, correct, correct, correct. Um, uh, and so that's really where... Uh, and one of the key recommendations Keith had in his, uh, in his work was to create something he called this guiding mind, where we brought the industry together, uh, fundamentally bringing parts of DFT, RDG, Network Rail under common leadership, um uh and uh, uh and then uh that would give us a better ability to take rational decisions across the system 
uh, he, I remember he he explained it really clearly to to us when he when he was speaking about. It. He said what he found in the industry was was one where our biggest revenue decisions were taken in one part of the industry, and our biggest cost decisions were taken in another part of the industry, um, and no reasonable organization setting itself up for success would separate those big decisions in that way and it, this is really about bringing that together and, and making those decisions in a in, in a joined up way okay so um uh, how are you going about that because it is difficult um you know we, uh, we've we've seen it for a long time this this structure has existed really for 25 years of franchising out um, and then we had COVID, which kind of uh, uh, provided a rather uh, kick to the system. Indeed. So how how are you going to go about bringing it more together? Yeah, it's a couple of couple of features in that. So first of all, we do absolutely need legislation to bring it together in a sustainable way, um, and uh, uh, the legislation is ready um, and it's being. Uh, it's been reviewed, uh, and uh, some of you, some of your listeners, will have heard Mark Bradsh- uh, Mark Harper talk about it at the Bradshaw lecture. So he's he and the team at DFT are pushing to get that legislation in the fourth session of of Parliament, so before a general election, uh, which would be our, our ideal scenario. Indeed, ideally, we'd have had it already, but we can't turn back time. Um, so we do need legislation uh, for, and primarily, what we need legislation for is to transfer the ability to uh, procure and manage passive service contracts from what has to happen in the DFT today. Legislatively, there is no option today other than that and uh, and allow um, what, what's now been termed Great British Railways, that, that guiding mind we talked about, um, to manage passive service contracts, but also uh, Network Rail will, uh, will fold into GBR as well. Um, as will uh, some smaller uh, agencies such as RDG, so that so that so that we do that. So so first of all, we need legislation. We also, but there are some elements that we uh, we can progress without legislation. Fares ticketing retail reform is probably the single biggest one of those, um, which is really about uh, both simplifying fares uh, so that they're more understandable for customers. It's really about trust, and and so that customers can trust uh, that when they. Uh, go on to a system to buy fares. They're getting the right value for money fare for their journey. Um, I don't think anybody could possibly argue we have a system that isn't confusing today. It's um, completely, uh, completely difficult, even for people who know a bit about the railways. Like exactly this. that. So how how can you do that uh, without legislation? What and you know uh, why haven't you done it already? If it can be done without legislation, sure. Um, so uh, the the building blocks are there for that. So we in the spending review twenty twenty one. Uh, the Chancellor set aside funding for that programme, the Fairs Ticketing Retail uh, Reform Programme. And and actually the first steps on that will come with some of the things that uh, Mark announced. So we pay-as-you-go will be extended in, in Southern region. Um, so we're beginning the journey on that. And of course, in order to introduce pay-as-you-go, you need to simplify the fare structure because that is an enabler to, to, to all of that. So we are beginning, yeah, the work in the background, the quiet work has started uh, and we hope to to start actually customers out there seeing a difference on that in, in the coming year uh, as, as we go forward. Of course, plenty of decision makers have to be persuaded in the in the interim. We we uh, we need decisions from Treasury. We need decisions from DFT. And we've got to work with colleagues in train operating companies, work with colleagues in perhaps regional combined authorities such as Manchester and um, uh, and Birmingham as two examples in particular. But that. 
uh, we we are hoping we, we that uh, passengers will begin to see some of that work in during the course of this uh, coming uh, the calendar year that we're in. But um, if you don't get the legislation, um, will GBR be created or, or can it only be created uh, if there is legislation? So, so I think there's there's two aspects that that are important to this part, Christian. So, first of all, um, formally, GBR cannot be stood up without legislation. It is it will be a it will be a function of legislative uh, output. Um, but I think what's just as important in the in the short term before we have that legislation is a very clear intent from government. And just as Mark did at the Bradshaw Institute, very clear intent that that is the direction we are heading in. You. Uh, will be you know painfully aware and clearly my team and and we were even more painfully aware during the hiatus of the kind of Boris time when uh, actually it, we we didn't know and and because we didn't know others didn't know whether that was the intent and that that became uh, it, we all saw the the news articles in the trade press about it's all over so so we we with that intent that that's the direction of travel actually we can begin to uh, begin to. To, to get the industry together, we can begin to start acting um, uh, and effectively trying to trying our best. So, for example, we can produce um, uh, a system PL, a system PL for any particular route and profit start and loss, profit and loss account. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I should, thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> That's um, which is which is a which is a way of manifesting and showing the system as one and therefore the impact of the decisions across that system. That mechanic doesn't exist today. Nobody looks at that even today. So no, at the moment, at the moment, as I understand it, the the, the, the revenue goes to the treasury, uh, and the costs are borne by the, the train operators and ultimately by the Department of Transport. Is is that correct? Yeah, broadly, yes. And and there, there therein lies another opportunity that we can begin without legislation, which is for the private sector operators to start. Uh, start having a bit of reason to operate as we know the private sector. You know, we could have a long political decision, a discussion about whether it's good or bad. But today we have private sector operators and they're not being incentivized to do what private sector operators don't do. National, the NRC contracts and national rail contracts, which are the current passenger service contracts, have the mechanism. We can, uh, we can start putting a bit of uh, reward back into those contracts for good delivery. Uh, we can incentivize around revenue. We can incentivize about around cost, and then you are engaging that private sector and the expertise that sits in those organisations to do better, to grow revenue, to uh, to cut costs in a sensible way, um, which isn't which isn't happening at the moment. And again, legislation isn't required for that. The contracts don't need to change. The contents of, of what's in those contracts, how we utilise the existing mechanisms, is what needs to change. So uh, just to go back a, a second, yes, I've got in front of me a, a, an article which appeared in, in Rail Review, the, the, the kind of quarterly magazine, which uh, is titled Scrap GB&R and Concentrate on Reform. And I remember Lord Henby at one point was just talking about reform and no longer talking about uh, GBR. But you seem to have survived that. And, and uh, uh, you know, certainly I wrote an article saying GBR uh, is dead, but but clearly it isn't. It, it, was there actually a hiatus when it, it yeah. might have been that there was going to be no GBR? Yeah, no, absolutely there was, because, um, you know, uh, 
this it was it was a policy the William Shapps is a white paper of government and when there isn't uh, uh you know when when big government is is in the position it was in during that hiatus after Boris Johnson's uh uh position then then um the Theresa May and then finally the Rishi Sunak we were uh, uh, no no uh, uh not quite to, uh, Liz, Liz Truss Liz Truss sorry yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, it's yeah. difficult to keep track sometimes indeed, yes. indeed. And, and there's me proving it as well yes um, but yes <laughs> Uh, we were absolutely in hiatus. Um, Mark also, when he came in, yeah, he was very clear that he wasn't just going to take this policy of his predecessor and and apply it blindly. He absolutely took his time. I can tell you, he uh, he wanted to understand not so much first of all what we were doing, but why we were doing it and why what we were suggesting was the right thing. I have to actually commend Mark about how hard he looked at it. And I think what that then though meant was when he was convinced it was the right thing to do, he absolutely then was very vocal about it at Bradshaw. And of course, that's the the second uh, SOS that we've been through with this journey. With when Chris came in, he was in a very similar position that you know this was all mumbo jumbo, wasn't required. Was it really the thing that? Uh, sorry, not Chris. When um, uh, Shaps came in, when when Grant came in. Um, and again, you know, after going through the conversation, the thought process and putting together what wasn't working to why this was the right answer. You know, this this is the third time. So originally, Chris, then Grant, then Mark, where we've been able to show that this is the right. Uh, this is a reasonable course of action and that other options haven't been put on the table that could achieve the same thing. So confident Mark's behind it, confident we've got. The right thing but there is no doubt there was a hiatus in the middle of that which right was that's, that's very interesting now i am slightly as you know i've, I've been a slight skeptic some aspects of rail privatization for, for a long yeah. time but um you know i'm all in favor of getting the railways uh sorted out and, and together but i'm still slightly confused about the role of the private sector because clearly franchising is dead you're not going to go back to no. a system where you ha hand over all the revenue risk and indeed Given the volatility of the market, uh, I don't think any private sector organisation would take it on at the moment. OK, so if you're not going to do revenue risk, are you going to go back to sort of some mild incentives for, uh, well, they're not even called train operators, uh, operating companies anymore. I suppose they're just called train operators. But for the, the train operators to uh, boost revenue or, or whatever. How is that going to work? I mean, is there really sure. scope for a strong role for the private sector or is it going to be fairly fairly light? Well, look, um, I think the first thing to say is um, it is a very, very clear policy decision that the private sector operators will continue to be in, in, in the role. That's a very clear policy statement from government. Um, and therefore, uh, yeah, our role is to create the right instruments that, that deliver the best of, of that outcome. Um, so a couple of things. First of all, um, what we can't describe is a single model that will work across the country because that would be entirely uh, entirely repeating the mistakes of the past. Um, in, in some parts of the country where there is revenue growth opportunities, where you have stable railways, there is an opportunity to uh, put a bit of incentive around revenue, both in terms of growth and protection. Um, and indeed, I think it would be true of almost every position, every contract, there would be an, an element of revenue incentive and, uh, and uh, incentive on, on growth. A very 
uh, a very wise um, uh, individual who's been in the industry for a long time, you know, was as we were doing some early work, was very keen to remind us, well, if you don't ask the private sector to care about money, then they won't. And if they're not caring about the money, then revenue won't grow. So uh, there will be. But there will be other aspects of those contracts as well in terms of customer satisfaction, in terms of how they have to work with uh, with other parts of industry to really create that uh, that that position. Now, there will be parts of the country who will be in the opposite situation where we've got an incredibly unstable environment. So, for example, you can imagine as uh, HS2 is being delivered on the West Coast, there's quite an unstable environment for uh, the standard, the, the traditional network. And therefore, we might find it difficult to find private sector organisations willing to take on revenue risk or revenue incentive in that unstable environment. So we'll have to create that the contracts in the right way, working with private sectors, organisations who are willing to bid and create environments where they're willing to bid it. But it's very clear, current policy statement is that there will be private sector operators. So we've got to, we've got to deliver a contract structure. Throughout, there, I mean, you can't imagine, you know, maybe Northern franchise being taken, or, or contract rather, being taken over by, I don't know, a group of local authorities. Or, or we have a situation in Mersey, Rail, for example, where at the moment, uh, you know, it, it's it's the uh, sort of combination of the local authorities, sure. uh, combined authority, which 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 uh, operates the franchise, and uh, um, it, it doesn't quite take on the revenue risk, but there isn't, uh, it isn't quite the same uh, situation. So, can you imagine that it might not all be private uh, private sector? There might be some public sector players, or is there really a notion that? All these all these contracts will be given to private sector. So in England, it's it's very clear government policy right. is that it will be private sector. So even those that are in the public sector through the uh, directly operated railways uh, mechanic, right. eventually the the view is now clearly you know, if policy changes, um, then that might change. Um, but in England, very clear policy policy position, government policy position is is we go for um, we we go for private sectors. Now, of course, um, it's going to take time to get there you know you can't procure uh these things overnight and indeed you wouldn't want to procure all of them uh straight away so i'm not i'm not envisaging uh those that are currently in the, in in the public sector through directly operated railways would you know there wouldn't be a wild swing straight towards the private sector uh on day one of gbr but the the the, the direction of travel is absolutely set and very clear but uh, right, you hinted there. You said in England. So, so in Wales and Scotland, we have different situations, don't we? Let alone Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, but so, what, 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 what might happen there? I mean, you, you'll still they'll still be part of Great British Railways, the name, or, or is it going to be Great English Railways? <laughs> no. Uh, so we do see, yeah, on the basis that customers travel across the country, uh, cross border, and so on. It, you know, you by keeping that in the heart of what we do. We do need network integrity as well as local integrity. Um, and of course, the answer there is we work with the policymakers in those places to deliver what's what what they want. Um, Scotland uh, is currently uh, being operated effectively in, in a directly operated way at the moment, uh, ScotRail. Um, uh, uh, Scottish government is currently considering what its policy position on that might be longer term uh, and similar. Uh, yeah, the conversation in Wales is slightly different because the whole relationship is in a is in a uh 
less mature developed uh, than Scotland is. You know, Scotland's had its own independence on on those views for for a while. So there are some bigger policy uh, positions that that uh, that you know are really in the macro uh, government kind of space about how how those uh, play out. Um, but we uh, we are in, we we've engaged with Scotland. We see uh, you know uh, how that might work. But actually, they've got to get through their, their next couple of years with ScotRail before they're really clear about what their next steps are beyond that. Right. OK, well, well last thing, Adit, uh, back to the legislation. Um, what What is that looking like? I mean, is that sort of uh, you know part of a big transport bill? Is it likely to, to happen? You're obviously very keen that it should, but yeah. you're also quite sanguine about the fact it might not and, and yeah. you would still survive. But uh, so... When is that likely to be the legislation, and uh, if it happens? So look, um, at this moment in time, no decision has yet been taken. So number ten is ultimately the arbiter on these these kinds of decisions. They're they're the they're the effectively the writers of the king's speech, and 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 will make that decision. They haven't yet made that decision. There are some policies which they have been very clear on now, which won't go into fourth session. So they have decided on, on some elements, um, and so we're still in. In a bit of limbo on that is is the honest answer. Um, so you know how how what does that mean for us? Well, look, we hope for the best. We hope for fourth session legislation, and we're ready for that. Should that happen, but we also have to plan for that not happening and being being uh, able to take best advantage of the momentum that's been created since uh, since uh, Mark has got behind it, um, and as well as Mark, I should also make a mention of Hugh Merriman, who has also been incredibly. Uh, uh, supportive of of, of this, um, and and actually with both of them behind it. Um, so we, as I say, we hope for the best, but we also have plans in place that uh, should that not happen, that we can make the best uh, of the of the momentum that we that they have created, um, and and ultimately uh, get us into a place where not quite as good as with legislation, but where we can start making decisions across the system um, uh, for the system, but undeniably that task is made a lot easier if we can get legislation through in fourth session. In terms of timelines, we will know the answer to that question. Um, ultimately, we know what uh, when the King stands up and does his speech post the summer recess, uh, the parliamentary recess. Um, but actually, I think as a consequence uh, of the way things generally work, we will know the answer to that question before the recess, at least uh, yeah, we'll have a, a very good indication of where that's going. Um, uh, because broadly those decisions get made before parliament uh, breaks um uh, so uh, we we stay uh, next few waiting weeks, with the next few weeks basically yeah. yes um uh, and without uh, wishing wish asking you to give away state secrets it sounds as if the legislation is is kind of ready you, you you're kind of you you're kind of ready to slot it in yeah so look, the the colleagues at DFT who yeah, and this absolutely sits in 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 the world of kind of civil service and DFT. The, the legislation is written; um, it it will clearly be subject to the normal parliamentary process. So as it goes through the houses, uh, it may get amended, but it's it's written uh, and uh, and is ready to 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 go should the decision be made. Right. Well. Let's end it on that. That's uh, uh, very helpful for uh, Anit. And, uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for doing that. I'm sure our listeners will be very interested to hear what happens. And, um, you know, uh, good luck over the next uh, uh, few weeks. You're obviously in for an exciting time. Thank Indeed, you very exciting, much. Exciting is one word for it, Christian. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat. Pleasure.
Christian, I think we learned a lot from your interview with Anit. What were the standout points for you? Well, I think there's two things, actually. One is uh, what a struggle they had in order to ensure that uh, great British railways stayed on track once there was uh, the new, as it were, government of uh, Richie Sunak. There was clearly quite some worries about it, and uh, it's maybe uh, quite a tribute to Anit and his work that it survived. And secondly, there is another struggle going on at the moment, which is over the legislation. And I think reading between the lines of what he said, uh, it's actually essential for uh, the idea, for the idea indeed to survive, that they have uh, legislation. Uh, but, you know, he did sound somewhat cautious about whether they could do, and he was quite optimistic about the thing they could do some things without it. But, you know, it's been a bit stalled. There haven't been many kind of uh, really developments of uh, the work of the transition team. And I really think that unless they get the legislation through, we might not see many changes to the rail network uh, until after the next general election. And I think as we record this podcast today on Friday, the 5th of May, we're already seeing the fallout from the results of the English local elections, uh, which have shown some very significant losses for the ruling Conservative Party in the uh, UK, uh, the, as the UK government. Um, and that could cause uh, reprioritisation of legislation for the forthcoming King's speech and whether absolutely. absolutely because you know is it is this a vote winner is, is creating this new organization going to win any votes and i've written about that in my forthcoming rail column and i somewhat suspect that uh you know it's not going to be top of the, the agenda in the, the 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 houses of swindon or blackpool or whatever other marginal seats they they need to hold on to so uh i think they will you know, try other things. So I, my bet would be that there's about a 25% chance of there being any legislation. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, you know, I'm not one often to celebrate uh, the royals and whatever, not usually kind of something I uh, go on about, but it was very pleasing to see Prince William and Kate on uh, the Elizabeth line. Uh, it was a kind of tribute, really, to his grandmother in a way. Um, but also, uh, it, it's a tribute to the success of the line, which is sometimes seeing kind of you know five, six hundred thousand people a day. Kind of one in, I think it's one in five journeys on the on the rail network is uh, on the Elizabeth line. Um, and you know, there's no stories of it's breaking down. It's about to kind of expand to uh, its its full service. Um, although, sadly, there's not going to be trains between Shenfield and Reading, apparently. Um, but otherwise, it has been an amazing success. And it does show that if you invest uh, in urban transport and you really set a 21st century standard, you make it kind of 
really something that people want to use, then uh, they will flock to it. And uh, indeed, if you want to know more about the history of it and the background to it, you can read my book, The Crosswell Story, which I updated uh, for publication in time uh, for its opening uh, last year. And, uh, you know, it's a story uh, showing warts and all about uh, the Crosswell scheme, now the Elizabeth Line, and uh, all the problems with it. But now they're forgotten and uh, people think it's a great success. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at All Stations Pod.